0: Welcome to the Substack audio channel for LaFond and Lockhart. Uh, Hopefully some of you remember the Crackpot podcast, and uh, this is sort of a continuation or a sequel to that. LaFond and I uh, will probably not be podcasting together very often, but we hope to do it from time to time. And uh, this is something I'd like to bring to you, which is I'm going to read aloud to you. It's after bedtime here in the uh, Lockhart home. The children are asleep and mom is having a little drink. And I'm going to read aloud to you from The Logic of Steel. This is an experiment. We're going to see how it goes, all right? Crackpot Books presents The Logic of Steel by James LaFond, read by Lynn Lockhart, book copyrighted 2018, production copyright 2021. Editors foreword to the Crackpot edition of The Violence Project. The volume in your hands includes two of James LaFond's earliest works, The Fighting Edge and The Logic of Steel. These books were published by Paladin Press in 2000 and 2001, respectively. The books each enjoyed a first printing and soon became available only on the secondary market, often at many multiples of the original price. When Paladin Press closed up shop in 2017, the rights returned to the author, who self-published them through a print-on-demand service. For less than a year, these books represented Lafon's greatest source of income, until they were summarily removed from publication with no warning or explanation forthcoming. This combined edition is the second attempt at self-publishing these works, and it will likely be a failed attempt, so congratulations, you are in possession of a collectible. The violence data Lafond collected from 1996 to 2001 is presented here in the form of anecdotes, tables, and narratives. LaFond performed over 1,000 interviews before publishing these books, and has since performed hundreds more. This is a treasure trove of information begging to be transcribed and analyzed according to proper statistical methods, with sample sizes more than large enough to yield significant results. It is your editor's fond hope that she may one day dust off her statistics texts and do justice to the matter, until then, the tables are presented very nearly as they were in the original publication. James LaFond is unique in the literary world today. He is, his writing is shaped by the life he has led far from the halls of academia or the offices of business. LaFond writes about fighting as a man who has put more of his own flesh and bone on the line than most anyone alive, and he writes about violence in the voices of hundreds of aggressors and defenders that he has known personally. Knife violence, in particular, reaches back into the deep history of humanity, the time when our first tool-using ancestors began sharpening stones. Here, LaFond shares what he has learned about fighting and violence from the fist to the blade, from the ring to the streets. The Logic of Steel by James LaFond To hug my enemy for taking that neck cut on the forearm, to Ted, my father, for finding him on the side of the road and finding me a lawyer, to Tony, my brother, for fronting me the money to cover the fine and the restitution. Thanks, guys. The Logic of Steel by James LaFond, A Fighter's View of Blade and Shank Encounters Copyright 2001 by James LaFond Production Copyright 2021 Acknowledgements The book you are about to read was made possible by the cooperation of the following people Bano, Rick Wayne, Iggy, Duncan, Raphael, Dan Funk, Link Sanchez, Laura, Tuck, Tattoo Rick, Ricky Mason, Haynes, Kenneth, Rich, Bryant, Susie, Duke, Liz, Tony, Alan, Burris, Pepper, Rob, Faith, Brian, Spider, Sue, Mark, Dzinski, Wally, Ted, Care, Gary, Jason, Steve, Ben, Snooky, Boss, John, Little Cindy, Brett, Ken, Roger, George, Dietz, Mike, Officer Lee, Robert, Joe, Feely, Al the Pimp, Tom and Vicky, Ron Bone, Paul, Kirk, Dave the Cop, Dodge, Manny. Bernie, Puppet, Rob Mills, Crazy Steve Newman, Jan, Ralph, Mouse, Jen, Mark, Ralph, Dorian, Walt, Jimmy, Manny, Lester, Tommy, Judy, Smack Daddy J, Easy Al, Donald, Mac the Narc, Yebbets the Ugly, Sandman, Yo Man, Mumblejack, Bubba, Crank, Carol, Quinn, Herb, Satchel, Crazy, Shank, Killpower, Ray Shaw, Ted and Pat LaFond, Sherry, Spin, Roy, Abram, Sleepy, Sifu Arturo Gabriel, and Chuck Getz, my training partner. With special thanks to Steve Newman for being a stand-up guy and coming through in a pinch. I have incorporated the following published accounts into this study. Chris Fout's interview of Pepsi, Steve Pendleton, Critter, my favorite, Casey, James Mahaffey, and Mike, as well as Chris's own encounter with a thumb-sucking knifer, all from his book, True Tales of American Violence, also from Paladin Press. 32 incidents reported in the pages of the Baltimore Sun, or broadcast by WBAL Radio and WJZ Television. The other 217 encounters are courtesy of the people named above and the author genesis age six grandma gave me a popsicle after eating the treat i took the stick outside and sharpened it on the sidewalk i thought it was a fine blade grandma took it away age 14 dad brought home a pair of five and a half inch sheath knives for my brother and me they came with leather-like sheaths that slid onto your belt With plastic, antler-style handles, my brother and I felt like full-grown men until Mother took the knives away. Age sixteen, I found a steel fence post and took it, along with a sledge, hacksaw, and file, to a coal pile in the woods where I forged a crude bastard sword. It was a powerful blade slicing sixteen inches of sheet metal with a single stroke. The police eventually took it away. Age twenty-four, a biker gave me a seven-and-a-half-inch Othello lock blade. It was a fine blade. His old lady had insisted that he give it away. Age twenty-seven, a local dope dealer paid four junkies to shank me. They got the wrong guy. He fought them, took more cuts than Caesar, and walked away. Age thirty-two, a punk tried to draw his blade on me. I trapped his hand at the hip. "'and pressed three knuckles against his lips. "'The next day he gave me his butterfly knife "'as a peace offering, "'and I finally put the Othello away. "'Age thirty-six, "'there is still nothing quite like a blade, "'fine or not, "'since boyhood blade-fighting "'has seemed a haunting riddle, "'but today I sense a brutal logic "'as old as our kind.' "'He was grabbed and then stabbed. "'The first stroke did not go deep.' HE SEIZED THE DAGGER AS THE OTHERS DREW THEIR BLADES, DEFENDING HIMSELF FOR A TIME, TRYING TO AVOID THE DESPERATE OVERHAND STROKES OF HIS ATTACKERS, BUT IT WAS NO USE. TWENTY-THREE MEN, POLITICIANS OR NOT, WITH STEEL IN THEIR HANDS AND HATE IN THEIR HEARTS WOULD NOT BE STOPPED WITH TWO NAKED HANDS. AS HE SLOWED AND THE BLADES BEGAN TO DIG DEEP, HE WENT DOWN. MORTALLY WOUNDED, HE DREW HIS TOGA OVER HIS HEAD. They would not see Gaius Julius Caesar take his last breath. So ended the most powerful man of his time, a man who had risen farther above the masses than any taken down by the most personal means available to his enemies. The small blade has been man's constant companion from the dawn of prehistory through the dawn of the 21st century. From the palmed flint blade of the mammoth hunter, to the folding lock blade of the American deer hunter, the blade remains the most personal weapon in our now vast arsenal and continues to be widely used. The premise of this book is simple. That man, the consummate, tool-using predator, will use the blade practically and effectively without training and in a manner that will reflect his state of mind or no mind. Only when he begins to philosophize outside the framework of the violent act will he adopt to frivolous conventions thus the proper study of blade use begins with a study of violence and survival preface stopping to smell the roses in the garden of hate bubbles grabbed his stomach and went down to his knees screaming you stabbed me and he was looking at his stomach ah that was such a great day I've never seen anything so hilarious. Link Sanchez This book is part of a project dedicated to faithfully presenting the nature of personal violence, focusing on the immediate causes, actual physical dynamics, and ramifications of violent encounters. An important part of this presentation is a limited form of oral history that I call Action Biography which permits the reader to become acquainted with the attitudes, character, and perspectives of those who participate in the true tales told in the following pages. After reviewing this manuscript, I fear some readers may come away with a false impression that we live in the midst of a barely contained race war. Although much of the violence depicted is interracial and many of the protagonists expressed racist views or use racial slurs in telling their tales, I have no evidence to suggest that racial mayhem is a dominant or even significant part of the American violence scene. Most violence occurs between unarmed, untrained individuals of the same sex and race. However, extreme acts perpetrated by groups and armed aggressors are more likely than ordinary brawls, to pit members of various races and ethnic groups against one another. When you fight with or against a blade or a group, you are, more often than not, leaving the world of brawling behind for the starker reality shared by the hunter and the hunted. When Kenneth, one of my personal heroes, describes himself as having become a pure nigger during the course of a life-or-death fight, he is speaking symbolically not literally. It might pain me to quote him, but he is making the strongest possible point. Like a woman using her manicured nails to imitate the bared claws of a cat as a way of expressing her jealousy of another woman, Kenneth is raising the dreaded image of the feared black man as mythologized by a liberal press and caricatured in racist propaganda to describe how far beyond the point of civility that particular event pushed him. I feel there is a need to accurately quote a person using slang or profanity to describe violence. Substituting the classic N-word with the common contemporary black term nigga would have de-emphasized the point Kenneth was trying to make violence is something that needs to be seen in the raw to be understood any attempt to do so that falls short of being offensive to the current dominant world view will most certainly lack depth and authenticity leave it to the martial arts industry and the socialist utopians to put a pretty face on an ugly subject you are about to explore the practical application of hatred Buried enough to make you mad, make you laugh, and make you wonder why. It ain't pretty, but I hope you like it. James LaFond, March 2001 Prologue The knife came out and pop! He held it right here, behind the right hip. Stepped forward, buried it, and yanked it out. It was over, baby! They booked and so did we. Link Sanchez Banno is about 5 feet 8 inches 190 pounds and strong enough to lift an engine block out from under the hood of a 1972 Chevy Impala. And he is one of those guys with no sense of personal space. He's got bad breath and an in-your-face knack for crude conversation. When he talks to you, his left arm is wrapped around the back of your neck and his right thumb is hooked in his front pants pocket just inches forward of where the hilt of his well-oiled balisong protrudes from the rear pocket of his unbelted jeans, riding low on his plumber's hips. At the time of the following incident, Bano had been home from Nam for about ten years. Since that time, he had managed to screw up his life in ways that would keep a half a dozen social workers busy for another decade. He blamed his lot and life on the war, but from what I know of his life, participation in a doomed crusade against communism could only have been an improvement. If nothing else, it kept him out of prison. A Walk on the Underside with Bano. Incident number 13:8. Time of occurrence: night. Duration: 8 to 10 seconds. Person relating the story: first-person defender it was a dark damp night in the district Banno had just emerged from the back room of a bar after smoking more than his share of some good shit he was stoned and hungry with three dollars left in his pocket there was only one thing to do head down the street for the convenience store in search of a bar of peanut brittle candy Banno pulled on his windbreaker and headed outside The bar entrance was at the base of a narrow stairwell. Since Bano liked to appear careless, but was actually paranoid, he carelessly shut the door behind him before checking the stairs. He found himself face to face with a tall black man and, based on his appearance and mannerisms, quite obviously a heroin addict, wearing a trench coat. The man flipped a switchblade out to his right and held his left hand out to the side in a give-me gesture, and demanded, "'Give me your money!' Bano wasn't about to lose his last three bucks to some junkie. Not when he had the munchies. Bano said, "'Okay,' as he reached for his rear-right pants pocket, where many male robbery victims keep their wallets, but where Bano kept his Filipino blade." When he got his palm on the balisong, Banno said to the would-be thief, That's the stupidest thing you ever did. This macho statement appeared to stun the addict. His mouth fell open, his eyes bulged, and his left hand stopped motioning for cash as Banno deployed the blade in a brief whirl behind his hip and plunged it into the taller man's left breast. According to Banno, the dumb bastard just stood there and stared at me. So I stuck him again. Each time that Banno struck, with a pronated saber grip, he buried the five-inch blade up to the hilt. After the second stab, Banno noticed that the light gray trench coat was growing darker around the chest. After the second one, the trench coat got dark and it spread like this. Spreads the fingers of his right hands over left chest. When the would-be robber continued to stand and stare in apparent shock, Banno stabbed him a third time. What else am I supposed to do? I was taught to finish strong. At this point he started to weave, so I stepped to the side, the right, and let him fall. As the black man fell face first off the bottom stair into the base of the stairwell, Banno walked up the stairs, pocketing his blade on the way, and headed down the street at a walk. "'I was real hungry. Feeling pretty good. Was late getting home. "'Banno stopped at the convenience store, got his candy, and then headed home where he played with the kids. "'Banno doesn't watch the news or read the newspaper, and he never went back to that bar again. "'Not only did he not know whether the man in the stairwell had died, he didn't care. "'He was incredulous when I remarked that I would have read the police blotter at the first opportunity to determine if I was in any danger.' He calmly replied, "But I wasn't worried about him. He was no longer a danger, based on the location and penetration of the wounds, the fact based on the location and the penetration of the wounds, and the fact that the street in that part of town are notoriously lacking in good Samaritans. I classified this episode as an armed aggressor fatality, an exceedingly rare outcome." Banno never killed again as far as I know, but he also never learned how to stay out of trouble and ended up doing time for various unrelated crimes. Banno may be a crude, uncivilized dude, but it could be argued that he did civilization a favor when he plugged that dope fiend. Unfortunately, the person getting stabbed in such a manner is more often an innocent victim than a thieving degenerate. Worst of all, the civilized modern society that Bano unwittingly did a small part to protect is steadily eroding the individual's right to self-defense. The most glaring example is the constant liberal assault on the Second Amendment. However, the anti-gun movement in the United States is only the most recent manifestation of modern man's misunderstanding of personal violence. Since the latter half of the 19th century, the man who wields a knife in defense has been as much a pariah as the felon who misuses a firearm. An illustration shows Bano's preferred fighting grip, a pronated turned horizontal saber grip, thumb used to guide rather than grasp, which deploys the shoulder muscle, much like a boxer's cross, and permits the blade to slip between the enemy's ribs. The knife in this photo is a cheap version of Bano's beloved weapon, the Filipino balasong knife, and was given to the author as a peace offering by a young man who had attempted to draw on him the day before. There is nothing more terrifying to the soft body and weak mind of the modern gender-neutral person than the thought of butchering or being butchered by a face-to-face antagonist. This is a fear as old as man, rooted in the terror of the leopard's claw and the hyena's jaw, and reflected quite adequately in modern horror films. The blade, too, is as old as man, an imitation of the predator's claw or fang, and consequently, as well as mechanically, offers the most personal form of protection and violation in the modern arsenal. When used effectively, the knife is even more personal than the fist. Regrettably, even the most basic facets of attack and defense regarding stabbing and cutting weapons are entirely missed by the vast majority of modern self-defense practitioners, a deficiency this book seeks to redress.